0: Welcome to the afternoon show, I'm Bill Arnold, and you know, Jesus always found himself surrounded by fellow Jewish people who were begging for his attention, and they were hanging on to his every word, but was Jesus a popular rabbi? We're going to discuss that today with Beverly Canaris, she's here with me in studio. Beverly has been a Bible study fellowship teacher for over 30 years, and uh, she's also the uh, co-host of... Uh, of a podcast called She Is Becoming. Always glad to have Bev on the show. Bev,
1: welcome. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, so it's a kind of a loaded question, but was Jesus popular?
1: Isn't that a good question? It is a great question. Think about it. I Our minds kind of go... Two different directions when we start talking about that you know if you are somewhat familiar with the bible you may say well of course look at how he taught he fed thousands he did all these amazing miracles uh look how many he healed how many people hung on his words followed him everywhere he went uh he taught as one who had authority the people said unlike their other spiritual leaders but on the other hand your mind may be saying all those religious authorities really seemed to hate him. They were very threatened by his popularity with the people. And these leaders were always trying to find ways to disgrace him, to undermine his teachings. They would point out where he was violating the Sabbath stipulations and mostly those man-made ones. Yes, indeed, he would run right over the top of them. Uh, People walked away from him when he started to talk about his body and his blood. And Finally, you might be thinking the rejection of Jesus ended in crucifixion. And you know what? Popular people usually don't end up on a cross. They usually don't. No. Nope. So let's look into this a little bit more. Today, we're going to look at a passage in the Bible that can shed some light on our question, was Jesus popular? Luke 4, verses 14 through 30, has been a passage I've spent a great deal of time in because I had a lot of tough questions I was asking of it. So this is kind of my process of how I answered those questions. In these verses in Luke 4, it tells us about a time when Jesus came back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, in these verses, it first appears the people are praising Jesus, but the next minute they're trying to kill him by pushing him off a cliff. What happened to his popularity to cause this shift in such a short amount of time and in his hometown of all places? Well, there's a real tension in this text, as one author put it. It seems that Jesus deliberately sabotaged his popularity among those whom he lived. Now, isn't that fascinating? Yeah, Aren't I gotta you think interested about that one. Yeah, do into how that might have happened? The scene starts so well. <laughs> Verse 14 Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, this is about one year into his ministry. Luke doesn't go into as many details as John does for that first year. So the Gospel of John would have more details of what preceded this. Next, we learn that Jesus does indeed go to Nazareth because it's in that same region, the city where he grew up. He goes into the synagogue, the one he would have attended in his early years as a boy. And it says also that he went into the into the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus went into, physically, into the Lord's house. And, you know, I just want to pause there a minute. Since COVID, I I see many, many people who are not going physically into church. They're doing it online. And I was so appreciative of that option when it was COVID. And I could, you know, I'm in my bathrobe with my cup of coffee and I'm, I'm you know, being part of the service that way. And for some people, that is their only option. But for those of us who have the option, I think it's important to physically put ourselves there with people, with God's people. I certainly notice a difference when I am sitting on the couch in my robe and when I'm in church. I, I have a harder time worshiping with all my heart and really being in the spirit when I'm at home. When I'm sitting in the congregation with believers all around me and I'm hearing it live, something really happens in my spirit and I feel a part of his body in such a way that really moves me and the, the songs move me more. Uh, I mean, I'm up and down a thousand times during the music part, you know, if I'm at home. So anyway, just a real good example from Jesus is that he went there, he put himself there and that was his custom to go into the synagogue. Now, these were people in this Nazareth synagogue who knew him and his family. This is the hometown boy, you know. They had heard about his teaching, his miracles, his popularity. In the synagogue, he stood to read, and maybe it was um, an offering to read when he stood. In the synagogue, they read from the scripture, from the law, and then from the prophets so different parts of the old testament the scroll from isaiah was handed to him now we don't know if he asked for it or it was simply the book that was to be read that day and jesus finds it says that he found so in other words he had to turn and keep on you know rolling this this scroll until he came to isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 just the first half of verse 2 and he reads it and listen to this as i read it jesus is really going to be describing Himself, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." He only read to that point the last half. Aren't you interested to know what the last half of verse two said? Why he didn't read it? It read this way, and a day of vengeance of our God. That really concerns his second coming when Christ will come, and he will come this time as judge of the world. So he's finished reading from Isaiah. He rolls up the scroll. All the eyes are on him, and he sits down. Teachers in this day would sit to teach rather than what like we do today, we stand when we're teaching. Then he says to them, here's the punchline of it all. Today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. So the central truth he shared is that the Messiah has come and it is he. Jesus was claiming that on the testimony of this Old Testament prophecy, he fulfilled this. This is who he is and what his mission is about. So that is a beautiful summary of what Jesus came to do. So before we go on any further to try to understand why this audience is going to turn on him, let's just reflect on this aspect of Jesus's ministry. Let me ask the listeners, as you're hearing this, do you know this Messiah, the one who knows your spiritual poverty, because he came to the poor, and one who loves you so much, that he wants you to know you can be free, from your guilt and shame due to sin. He's going to set the prisoners free. This Messiah Jesus, who will give you spiritual eyes, maybe you feel blind to really, you don't know God, you don't understand the things of God. He wants to give you spiritual eyes to see him and to see your life and this world in light of his truth. Do you know the only one who can set you free from the oppression of your own sin and the oppression of the evil one? God wants you to know his favor. That's how this ends. It says, this is the year of the Lord's favor. How do we come under this favor of the Lord? We do this when we believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Message of scripture is repent of your sin and believe in the one who became unpopular so that you might have the Lord's favor. This can be your year of the Lord's favor, your life of the Lord's favor. God favors us, so often we question that. God favors us as he would his own son when we receive Christ. What a beautiful truth. If you break this truth down that Jesus read in the synagogue that day, you really see such a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ came into this world to do. All right. Back to Luke 4.
0: (laughs) That was a nice little uh, diversion. That was a great, um, great, that was time well spent, Bev.
1: Yeah. You know, we can't ever teach God's word without going back to the gospel. Amen. And this goes, that went right back to the gospel. Mm -hmm. And we often wondered, why did Jesus have to come? I remember being, before I received the Lord, I wondered, why did Jesus come? Why did he have to die? And this passage really tells us why he came. It was all for us. Well, okay, back to Luke 4. Let's see how the people in the synagogue now respond after Christ sharing this with them. I mean, this is this is huge. This is what they've been waiting for for centuries. And here Jesus says, I'm fulfilling this and it's right now and it's me. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. You know, doesn't that just seem so positive? Yet, we know too that Jesus knows the hearts and the thoughts and the truths that Jesus was sharing here were most likely just being heard as sometimes we all hear sermons. Oh, what a wonderful, oh, that was so great, so beautiful. Oh, he said it so well. You walk out the door, you can't even remember what he said. You've done nothing about it. They didn't want to apply it to themselves. In other words, it was just a good talk, but there was no heart connection there. There was no self-examination. They didn't see themselves and the state of their own hearts, but Jesus is going to expose it to them. So we'll stay in the darkness unless the Lord reveals the true state of our hearts and our need for him. They had a distorted view of the Messiah and his ministry. So Jesus is going to now kind of take them on a self-examination and test them to show them what's really in their heart. So Jesus begins to reveal their heart when he tells them in verse 23, Surely you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what, you, what we heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I believe here he is revealing a prideful desire to have their hometown boy show off his powers and this will reflect well on them. They want a show and not a savior.
0: Wow, that's interesting uh, analysis. We're going to take a break as we talk about this amazing topic. Was Jesus popular? And we're doing that with Beverly Canaris. She's a Bible study fellowship teacher and also a um, co-host of a podcast, She Is Becoming. We'll take a break and be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com.
2: It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car,
3: yeah. what's for dinner? Yeah. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno.
0: So anybody that wants to pray through the Book of Psalms or take me on an adventure through the Book of Psalms, I instantly call friend. So my new friend is John Greco. who He's written a book exactly about that. It's a devotional adventure through the Book of Psalms and it's called The Ascent. And I'm just so glad to have him on the show cuz I love the Book of Psalms. John, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So, uh first of all, way to go. The book is beautiful. And Thank you. you uh I'm curious about your love for the the Book of Psalms and tell me what prompted you to want to write this book, The Ascent. Yeah, so it's actually kind of funny. Like, so I'm a, I'm a Bible geek. I love
3: scripture. I love digging in, but I really love, like, you know, narrative. I love getting into the history and the culture and, and all that stuff. And, and so Psalms has never really been my, you know, book of choice. Um, and the idea of reading through it as if it was just any other book of the Bible really, you know, never really struck me. I know some people do that, you know, read you know, five, five Psalms, Psalms a day and a proverb every month, um, but I've never been that guy. Um, but, uh, you know, we had this, uh, this thing, I don't know if you know about it, but the pandemic, remember that?
0: I do remember uh, that. 20, <laughs> 2020. I'm old, I'm old enough I, to remember that. <laughs>
3: 2020, the spring of 2020, I found myself for the first time in a long time, you know, working from home like everybody else. And, uh, suddenly I had, you know, my mornings free. I wasn't stuck in the car on my commute. And so I said, well, I'm going to use this time to, to, draw closer to the Lord, and I had made it a habit at the office to, to read a little bit of the Gospels every morning before work, but I said, I've got more time now. I'm going to read through the book of Psalms. Um, the reason I picked Psalms was simply because, you know, it was. you remember that time, right? Everybody was anxious and filled with uncertainty and grief and what's happening and where's God in all this and you know, hearing about friends getting sick. And it was just a whole, you know, a whole, just uh, a whole ball of confusion and so I said, you know, the Psalms, you know, David's crying out to God in many of Psalms. Not always David, but, but David is, is largely the guy who does that. And, um, and there's a lot of questions, and it's just very raw and real. There's all this emotion on the page. And I said, you know, that sounds right. That's when, like, where I need to be. I need to have words for my feelings. And so I, I just started reading one, one Psalm a morning.
1: Uh, and then
3: as I started reading, I realized, you know, that Bible geek part of me that wants to be again didn't go away. And so I started taking notes. I started asking myself questions. I started, you know, circling and highlighting those troubling verses that didn't seem to make sense. And then I would dig in and do research. And I was, you know, at first this was just for me. I was just taking notes. And then uh, I realized that, you know, what I had there might be helpful to other people. So I decided uh, to put together this devotional. I, I, you know, chose devotions, uh, devotionals as a, as a tool. I feel like, you know, people are more likely to read a one or two page devotional that's encouraging. Um, but it will also help them uh, dig deeper into Scripture than they are if I just wrote, you know, like a commentary. And so that's where it, that's where it started. And I just, you know, every every day I find like new treasure. Yeah. So I just loved it. And, you know,
0: yeah, John Greco is my guest. His book is The Ascent: A Devotional Adventure Through the Book of Psalms. And John, let's let's dig into a couple. Let's look like at the patient love of God in Psalm ten. No, I'm ten, so you're gonna you're gonna catch me because I don't have them all memorized. That's okay. But, I I know you've probably got your uh, your hand on a copy of the book. So
3: yep, I got, it, I got
0: it. Yeah, I mean, you talk about when we endure harsh or unjust treatment, we want God to move on our behalf, right? Yeah. And if He doesn't, it feels like you know, where are you, God? Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and and it's really a tough. It's one of those questions
3: that kind of we all have. In fact, like, you know, honestly, this morning I was talking to my wife about. You know, something we're facing, and I had that same question: Like, where are you, God? Why is this taking so long? Um, we've been praying. We know you're good. We know you're going to answer, but where where is the answer? Um, and that's you know that's what uh, what's going on in Psalm 10 there. But um, you know, Scripture kind of tells us you know that God God's love is patient, and we think, oh, patient. but oh, I got to wait. But what that what what God means when He says His love is patient is that He's not willing to just go ahead and wipe out evil in a heartbeat because he could right he could just say you know tomorrow all right that's it everybody that's every you know every sinful act i'm going to wipe off the face of the earth i'm going to remake creation i'm going to you know save um save all, all who have been who have been blameless but the problem is none of us are blameless right right um, peter says you know second peter he says the lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness that he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish. So the problem the problem with God taking care of evil quickly or instantly is you and I are evil, right? You and I have done wicked things, and there are people who don't know Christ who are still lost. And if he were to, if he were to come back today, those people would be gone. And so uh, God, God's patience is so that as many as possible might be saved. That's his goodness on display. So, yes, we still live in a world that's broken, and people hurt us, and and it feels like sometimes God isn't there, but He's patient, and His timing is perfect, and we'll just hold on and
0: wait. Yeah, and John, this psalmist cries out in Psalm 10, verse 12, Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God, do not forget the helpless. We feel that way from time to time, and thank goodness He hears every word we utter. Yeah, the thing about God that's so it's kinda of hard to wrap your mind around, right? But the truth is he is
3: one hundred percent fully loving, fully good. But he's also just. He's not gonna let the wicked go unpunished. Right. So, you know, when some when something happens to us and we we you know, we have this sort of like automatic offense, right? There's that you know, a part of it is it's not healthy to live with that when you give it to the Lord, but also that sort of um It's an echo of who God is. God's just, right? When something wrong happens, he's going to correct it, right? He's going to put things right. And that that is a good instinct in us to want justice. Um, We just have to remember, you know, that justice is doled out in two places, right? It's doled out either at the end of history, at the judgment, or it's doled out on the cross. And, you know, God has provided this way so that we can escape condemnation, we can escape the
0: judgment by clinging to Christ. Mm
3: -hmm. That's that's the good news, right? Yeah. Um, So—
0: yeah, my guest is John Greco, which I have to admit is a fun name to say. And the book he's written is called "The Ascent: A Devotional Adventure Through the Book of Psalms." All right, John, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you a fastball here. Let's uh, talk about Psalm 23. It's a psalm everybody knows. Oh,
3: yeah. So this is I mean, this is one of those psalms that I think everybody knows, but you know, it's 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 um you know, it's another of that we become so familiar that we kind of lose sight of what's really happening. One of the things that kind of caught me off guard uh, was reading this psalm. um, And, you know, I'd read it a thousand times before and and knew it, you know, by heart. And, um, in fact, I think think when I was a kid, I had to memorize it in French class. So I I knew it in French at one point. Um, But the thing that kind of struck me as I was reading through uh, this time was just how personal it is, right? Um, the Lord is my shepherd, not our shepherd, not you know, everybody's shepherd, but my shepherd. And and that continues through through the psalm, right? It's all these very personal um, pronouns, right? So it's he guides me, he leads me, he refreshes my soul. It's like it's like you as the reader, uh, God's intending you to see yourself as his as his only concern, uh, As he is you are so close to him, you are as if you were the only sheep in his pasture. Um, and that's just to me that's just that that is somehow um one of the most magical things about God right and you think about you know he's the king of the universe right everyone answers to him he loves he loves everyone he's got every concern you know every concern that's 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 lifted up to him you know, is before him but he still treats every one of his children as if they are his only child um, and it's just you know it, it's one of those it's one of those beautiful um it's one of those beautiful psalms that um, just kind of speaks to who God is, and I love I love the way it ends. Right? It's it's no longer. You know, it starts out. You know, we're supposed to picture ourselves as a sheep out in out in the field, and we're being led, and then all of a sudden we're 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 in God's house, right?
0: So <laughs> um, you know, it says,
3: "Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." So we go from you know being a sheep in His care who, you know, is being—he's uh, keeping us from danger, providing for our needs, to, oh, no, we're, we're a kid at home with Dad. Um, and it's just beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. John Greco is my guest. John, I know that David uh, wrote a lot of the Psalms. What are the, the other au- authors of Psalms? Who did you—who stands out for you? Who, who did you really like, or who were you drawn to? Oh,
3: well, you know, the one—so so some of them we don't know, right? Some of them are just the psalmist, and we have right. no idea some guesses. And then, you know, Moses wrote Psalm 100 and, and, and Asaph wrote some Psalms. Mm-hmm. The one, uh, and I, I'm, I'm going I'm to be caught off guard here because I don't remember what number it is, but there's a Psalm that uh, Solomon wrote. And it struck me as just being the most tragic of all the Psalms, um, because it's the Psalm where he says, unless built, the Lord builds a house, the labor the, the, the labor's done in vain. Um, and that always struck me because if you want to about Solomon's life, and God was building him a house. He had promised David that he would build build his family's house, and would work through Solomon. Solomon had everything you could possibly want, right? He had God had spoken to him, you know, uh, and appeared to him in, in dreams, and uh, he was given wisdom beyond what anybody else had, had ever experienced. Um, and he was you know, the wealthiest man um, of the day, and you know, you couldn't imagine uh, being you know, at peace during his reign. It was just this perfect situation, and yet he turned to other gods. He let his wives seduce him into into chasing after and worshiping other gods. And um, you know, it's just it, that house that God had promised him, Solomon let go to ruin um, because of because of how Solomon behaved. Right? God took took the kingdom and split it in two to Judah in the south and Israel in the north, and and you know, it, it, it ruined. It ruined. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. Prime time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car.
1: What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill
0: Arnold. Welcome to the show. If you've missed any of this, I think you're going to want to go to myfaithradio.com. Go to the uh, website, check out the podcast, and make sure you hear it from the beginning, because when Jim Wallace starts uh, talking, you want to be listening. So he is my guest for the hour. You go to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about him. He's got a very impressive bio. He's a very smart guy. Always love having him on. He's got a section on his website called Rapid Response, and if you want to do a little brush up on your personal evangelism and apologetics, it's always a great place to go. It's filled with resources. And you should check it out. One of his rapid response questions, and I love this question, is, can belief alone save you? Hmm. I'm going to let you rapid response to me.
2: <laughs> well, okay, so like, what do we mean by belief? That's always the question, right? So so I, I think that there's a difference. Um, it's clear that, that, that Scripture tells us that the demons believe, yet they're not saved. So so like, what is this, this difference um, between the kinds of belief that, Look, you know me well enough to know that I think that faith is not just a matter of wishful thinking. That instead, um, when we talk about matters of faith, we're talking about a, uh, a. Look, I always tell it this way in terms of juries. Juries are given a bunch of evidence, and we ask them before we start, are you the kind of person that needs to have every question in your mind answered before you can render a verdict? Because if you are, I'm probably going to dismiss you as a juror because there's just no way I can answer every question. I always have questions myself I can't answer. I can't get in the mind of every bad guy I've ever investigated. So, so what we do is we're going to give you enough evidence, though, everything you need to know, even though we're not going to give you everything that could be known. We're going to give you everything you need to know, but not everything that could be known. Mm. Because there's just no way, this is true for Scripture too. It's going to give you everything you need to know, but not everything that could be known. So if you are the kind of person who's like, you know, I, I really need, more, you know, we've we going kind to of give you enough evidence in a jury trial to bring you, point you in the right direction, you'll, you'll know enough to be able to make a decision, and then you're going to have to make the decision. And and that's just the nature of the kind of work we're talking about. And that step you take across the end of the evidence trail to your decision, that's called a verdict. And the same thing is true for us Christians. We're going to give you – there's more than enough evidence in the pages of Scripture for you to make a decision about who Jesus is. And that step you're going to take across the end of the evidence trail when you still have unanswered questions, because I still do. Well, that's every jury trial I've ever investigated. There are unanswered questions. And you still can render a verdict. Same is true here. Now, the difference between kind of belief – is whether or not I have belief that or belief in. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And so you talk about the idea, typically it's it's talked about in the sense of like, you know, if I I can believe that the plane is going to get me there, but until I get in the plane, I haven't put my faith in the plane. I can believe that it's, 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 um, it's, it's going to get me to the destination. But until I step in it, I have not, I don't believe in the plane, but that step of trust now you see this all the time with, 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 officers who wear their bulletproof vest, right? They, they train, they know it can stop bullets from seeing it stop bullets in the range. We test these things like, okay, it's good to go. We can stop bullets. And then you get out in the field and there's going to be times when you're going to have to trust it. You're going to have to say, Hey, you know what? It's going to have to do its job now. And that, that's when you move from belief that to belief in that kind of belief where you are willing to, to, to trust a, 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 claim with your very, life is the kind of belief that we are called to have as as christians the kind of belief that is different than just believing kind of like the facts of the case this is about well i could render a verdict that might put this guy in jail for the rest of his life i can believe the facts about jesus but until i'm ready to put my trust in him for the rest of my life well that's the difference and that's the step you take for me it occurred as i was reading through scripture i got to believe that by simply reading what the scriptures told me about jesus i'm like oh okay this 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 all checks out i just put my did my due diligence Okay, I believe that this occurred in the first century. But if you don't think – you've got to stop reading the Scripture for what it says about Jesus and start reading it for what it says about you. Well, then you realize you have a need for a Savior. And until you recognize you have a need for a Savior, you're probably not looking for one. But if you do both of these or you look for what it says about Jesus and then what it says about you, well, then you're kind of in a position now where you can say, okay, uh, I'm in. I I, I know I have a need for a Savior, and lucky for me, I did the hard work of of knowing that this is true, of believing it's true on the basis of the evidence, so now I can put my trust in Jesus as Savior. Now, now why is that important? Because it turns out that, that few officers are willing to stand unflinchingly in a gunfight if they don't know evidentially that the vest can stop bullets. And when you see it with your own eyes, now you've got confidence because you've got good reason to believe the vest can do what you've been told it could do. Well, the same thing is true here, especially for young people in a culture that is really kind of coming at us hard, is that if you want our young Christians to stand in this claim as though it is true – and to stand unflinchingly when they're going to be challenged on every moral teaching of Jesus, because all of these are coming under attack. Mm-hmm. Everything, from marriage to sexuality to identity, all of these things are coming under attack. If you want our kids to stand unflinchingly, we're going to have to give them reasons, good, good evidential reasons. Because once you know that the, the best this this thing we call Christianity it can stop bullets, but until you see it, until you know the reason why it can, until you compare it to other worldviews to see that it can, well, then you're not going to. Trust it, and this is, this is where we are right now. It's, it's, I almost think sometimes that as Christians we kind of think, well, no, it's a matter of sheer will. And the more unreasonable the claim, the more sheer will it takes to believe it's true, and God then um, answers that with uh, – rewards that with salvation, right? That kind of faith in something that's, that's, that most would consider unreasonable. Well, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus did. Jesus constantly offered the evidence of his miracles, He constantly – he spent 40 days with the disciples after the resurrection, giving them even more convincing proofs. Why would you do this if it's just about blind faith? Like you could just basically – I suppose you could come and say, I am the Messiah. I'm not going to do anything to demonstrate that I'm the Messiah. I'm just going to ask you to believe it. That's not what Jesus did. So I think his view is similar to this in the sense that he knew that if you want to stand tall in what you're about to face, my disciples – I want to spend the next 40 days with you, giving you this kind of assurance by way of evidence that you can stand tall then when someone begins to stone you, because that's coming. And if already for you to stand tall in that, you need to know this is evidentially true.
0: Such a great answer, Jim. And I think of your, you can be intellectually persuaded, but maybe not spiritually transformed. So once you put the vest on and you take a bullet,
2: (laughs) you're transformed. You go, this worked, it saved my life. Yeah, and I think that is not an either or, right? So I, that, most of us who who work as apologists, um, if I'm honest, we uh, have a tendency to lean too heavily into uh, the kind of the rationale, uh, the rational, or the um, the case for, or the evidence for, whatever it may be. We have a tendency to um, lean into that a little bit too much. So 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 we would say that um, you can't trust your feelings. You can't. Well, it turns out it's a, it's a both and is that your experience of God is a form of evidence, right? It's direct evidence. You saw it with your own eyes. You experienced it with your own eyes. But you have to test it because if you don't test it, it could be – I mean, most of my Mormon family will tell me they've had an experience that demonstrated to them that Mormonism was true. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so apparently experience is not enough because it has not protected them from from error – it's tested experiences. It's when you have that emotional experience, when you have that, that experience of your heart, that then you can measure against what you know to be true and intellectually. Well, that's when you're in the place that God wants you to be, right? Because we're told to test everything. But you're going to have experiences. Just don't let them be untested. Let's let's spend some time making sure that those experiences are actually what you think they are.
0: And now there's so much emotion attached to virtually everything today. So we're so emotionally driven but if people say, "What well, you know, I, I came to faith, but I don't feel saved. Uh, I hear that a lot, yeah. too.
2: Yeah, well, and this is because we we are in a culture right now that has moved the idea of where truth is grounded. It's no longer grounded, sadly, in, um, in uh, an objective reality that's outside each of us as a subject. So in other words, we kind of think of it like, you know, it's like your favorite. If you think the best cookie is chocolate chip cookies— That really is grounded in you as the subject who holds that personal subjective opinion. That's why I call those kinds of claims, subjective truth claims. And it's true that all of us, we make subjective claims all the time, but that's not the only kind of claim there is. You know, if you said, for example, that – that uh, you know the cure to, uh, to let's say, well, tuberculosis is isoniazid. Okay, great. So the cure of tuberculosis is isoniazid. That's more than a matter of my opinion. That's true for everyone. Even if I don't hold that opinion, even if I would like to try to, re- to, to reject that notion, I can't. I don't get to make that true with my own will. That's true objectively because it's grounded in the object called isoniazid, not in me as the subject. So there are also objective claims. But we're in a world right now where that, that that many people obje, uh, refuse to even acknowledge objective claims. They think that everything can be discovered or determined. Like the truth isn't even discovered anymore. Truth is determined by us as subjects. And if that's the case, then you're going to see all kinds of people who will default to what they're feeling because that that can be accessed subjectively. Like you, you know what you're feeling. If, 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 but we know that – we hear this expression all the time, right? The facts don't care about your feelings. Well, that, that expression makes sense if if there's something objective outside of each of us that is factual, that if the train is coming, I can say with all my will that I don't think the train is coming. But I don't get to decide if the train is coming. I better not step on those tracks <laughs> mm-hmm. unless I know that it's coming objectively. It's, it's grounded in the object called a train, not in the person who's about to get killed by that train who's the subject who's thinking about it.
0: Yeah. I hope I'm not making you talk too much. Do you need to take a sip of vitamin water?
2: <laughs> you know, if I take a sip of anything, it's going to be an energy drink. Okay, okay good. So that, All right. I know, you know you've thought about this and written about it a lot.
0: Um, how can you believe the Gospels when they don't seem to agree?
2: That's because that's why I first got interested in the Gospels. I would not, I would not believe them if they did agree. <laughs> and if they agreed word for word, I'd yeah. say, why do we have four copies? Why do we have four different versions? When we say there are four versions of the life of Jesus, that word version is key. Yeah, there are four different versions. Because if four different people wrote about me, if, I, for example, my wife writes about me and my kids write about me, they'll both contain many of the same stories, but from two entirely different perspectives. They're going to sound different. And there's going to be places where you're going to go, well, really? Well, why didn't you mention this? He mentioned that. Why is this missing? Well, it's not really missing. It wasn't just my emphasis. Each of us makes decisions. We, we in real time, we edit we edit what we're going to say, but we also sometimes will focus in and edit what we're going to see. So I know that witnesses aren't necessarily editing what they're saying to me, but in the time it actually occurred, they may have in real time edited what they chose to see. Now, that's very different, right? Because if I'm focused on the gun, I can miss a bunch of stuff. They get tunnel vision, and then I'm great as far as testifying to the gun, but I can't tell you much of what was happening behind him in the background. Other witnesses are going to be needed for that because we all edit in real time, even as observers, and you'll see this in witnesses all over the place that you talk to. And when, I, when it got me it started in the Gospels, it says, as I was reading them, for the purpose of mining out the wisdom statements of Jesus, supposed to be a smart guy, right? So I, that's why I was reading the Gospels. But the first thing I noticed is the stories don't line up. The stories don't agree. Perfect. That had, this to me… Uh, a touch of reality. In other words, that's what I would expect if these were true eyewitness accounts. That's why I even bothered to test them. Now, what I discovered is no two witnesses ever agree, ever, ever. Mm -hmm. So if they start to agree, there's probably collusion.
0: Yeah. So if there's uh, five people that witness something and they all gather in a little circle and to say, this is the story we're going to tell, you probably
2: don't trust that, do you? Well, you got to, yeah. I don't trust. Well, first of all, you know I'm a jerk. Is it? I don't trust anybody. anybody. <laughs> well, there's other yeah. reasons why I got other issues. Okay, sure, yeah. why I won't trust people. But but yeah, a lot of it is is you, that's the mechanism by which you you succeed as a detective. If you trust everybody, no one's going to go to jail. If you trust nobody, somebody's likely to go to jail. And and that's really what we're we're doing here is we are. Um, Doing our best to figure out, okay, how, what if I'll start off with a glass half empty, and then I'm likely to get to the truth, mm-hmm. and that's what I tried to do with the gospels. I started off not believing them, and in the end, um, I had to be, I had to demonstrate it for my I I had obstacles that I had placed in front of the gospels, in front of the gospel message. I had placed these in front of the gospel message uh, as barriers that I had built. I was so skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, and also pretty prideful and didn't really want anything to be true that would make me less the authority than I uh, saw myself as. So that was a lot of it, if mm-hmm. I'm honest with you. Yeah. So
0: let me take uh, a break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. When we come back, I've got a question about eternity for him. I know he'll be able to answer it. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. Learn more about him and his brand new book. It's a uh, person of interest available right now on Kindle for only three ninety nine. You want to pick it up Be right back. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Welcome back to the show. John Greco is my guest. He serves as editor of the He Reads Truth Bible and New Testament Theological Editor for the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. We're going to have to get you on the show to talk about that as well. But his uh, latest book is The Ascent, a devotional adventure through the book of Psalms. And I love Psalms, and he does too, so we're having a a lively conversation. David was chosen to be king when he was so young. John, why do you think God chose him if he knew that he was going to be responsible for so much wrongdoing?
3: Yeah. I mean, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. It's kind of one of those phrases that, you know, it's poetic, but it also, what does it mean exactly? What does it mean that David was a man after God's own heart? And as as you read through the Psalms, you get, uh, and even just reading through the the historical books that tell us about David's life, you find that over and over again, David returns to the Lord as his only hope. You know, he knows that there is the only true lasting joy um, is found in God's presence, he says in Psalm 16, and he just he knows that there's 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 no one else he can turn to other than God, no matter what's going on in his life, and that's true when he's you know on the run from Saul, it's true after he's sinned with Bathsheba, um, it's true at every point in his life, it never changes, and so I think um, when, when God says he's a man after my own heart, what what that means is that David is 100% thoroughly loyal. God. I mean, just look at his response when the prophet Nathan calls him out on his sin with Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. You know, he he doesn't make excuses, right? He's he's cut to the heart. He knows in that instant when he's when he's when it, when the reality of what he's done is put on display for him to see. He immediately, you know, is gut wrenching, like just repentance, right? And um and, and and so I think that's it. It's not that he's perfect. It's not that he doesn't sin. It's that he, no matter what, he's always loyal to God, and he's, you know, he doesn't, um, he always returns, he always comes back, he's always, he's always God's man, um, and I think, you know, in our own lives, that's an encouragement because, you know, I screw up all the time, right, I, I mess up, I, I sin, and, you know, the difference is, am I going to cover up my sin, am I going to hide from God, am I going to turn the other way, or am I, when I am, when I'm confronted with it, am I going to turn to him in repentance, am I going to uh, come to him in sorrow, and, um, and, and you know, truly, Draw closer to him um, because I know he is the only one who can forgive my sins. He is the only one who can wash me clean. Um, yeah, so that's I think that's the kind of that powerful example that David gives us. And again, we don't want to whitewash it and say he was a perfect, perfect right. guy. His sins are big. Um, but he was also, you know, like the Bible says, he was a man after God's own heart.
0: Mm-hmm. I love Psalm 19, uh, verse 1 says, The heavens declared the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So we're seeing the beauty of creation. And, and uh, what do we learn for, about day and night from Psalm 19? Maybe you can explain that.
3: Well, I wrote uh, in the book about how um, the, the sky is itself You know this beautiful gift from God. No matter where you are on the planet, no matter whether you're in the desert or out in the you know grasslands or where it's you know frost all year long or whatever whatever the case is. No matter where you are, we all get to look up at the beauty of the sky. And the sky is beautiful, right? I mean, if you take a think, think about it, I mean, just the other day, my wife and I were walking through our neighborhood, and I looked up at the sky. And there's these beautiful pink clouds that were, you know, just kind of it was sun. It was sunset, and they were kind of doing this funky gray pink thing in the air, and it was just like I couldn't take my eyes off it. I kept talk mm-hmm. about it. And just think about this: like this is this gift. This is God is this artist who gives us this this beautiful painting, and it changes throughout the day, every day. And, you know, it, and it's always telling us something about it, right? Whether it's, you know, the beauty that I'm talking about, or it's, oh, it's raining. He's watering the earth. He's providing for us by, you know, all the crops are growing, and it's feeding us and all this stuff. Or, you know, it's um, it's just it's giving us shelter from the, the, the heat, right, the clouds, that kind of thing. It, no matter where you are, it's always telling us a story about what God is doing, and we all get access to it. There's no, right now, there's no There's no way that, you know, the 1% could take the sky for themselves and leave us all without it, right? right. for everybody. Rich, yeah. poor, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter where your background is, doesn't matter how you sin, we all have the sky. And it and it does, it declares the glory of God. It tells us how good he is. Um, but I also say, you know, there's it doesn't tell us the whole story, right? Um, no one's going to stare up at the sky and discover that, that, that Jesus died on a Roman cross for their sins. Um, so it, it points us to God, but we still need scripture. So it's kind of like you know, for anybody who um, pays attention, it's going to kind of start telling the story. It's going to let them know there is a God and that he is good. Um, But then he's given us the scripture so that we can, so we can be drawn to him uh, in a very real and tangible way. We can walk with him and not just go, huh, the creator, whoever created us must be good. You know, it goes beyond that. It tells us specifically what
0: he did so that we can be with him forever. Mm -hmm. John Greco is my guest. His book is The Ascent, a devotional adventure through the book of Psalms. All right, John, um, Psalm 34, that describes God's faithfulness during a a difficult season by protecting the psalmist. So maybe explain why a a righteous person is described as having no broken bones. Now, keep in mind, I've got orthopedic surgeons that listen to my show, and they're probably not going to be happy to hear this.
3: Yeah, now this is this is one of those psalms that kind of like I said, I, you know, as I was reading, I circled the weird things, and this is one that, that I definitely circled. I uh, went back and did some research. So um, Psalm thirty-four is written by David, and the, I'll read it for you. The little, you know, that sometimes with the psalms we get a little title information that tells us a little bit about the the circumstances or what it's about. And this one says, Psalm thirty-four of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. So what that's referring to, there's a there's an account in um, in uh, I believe it is I'll tell you exactly what it is it is First Samuel um, 21 and David's on the run from Saul and he's you know he, he can't find a place to hide in Israel and so he says you know what I'm going to do I'm going to go I'm going to leave Israel I'm going to go hide out in uh, the Philistine territory I'm going to in fact I'm going to go to Gath. Which is, if anybody has their Bible, that's where Goliath was from, that the, the, the he slayed. And so he goes to, goes to Gath. He hides out there. But before long, the people in Gath sort of figure out who he is, and the rumor starts spreading that David's there. So uh, David decides, well, they're going to kill me, so I better I better figure out a way to avoid uh, their wrath. And he pretends to be insane. He goes around acting uh, crazy. He's frothing at the mouth. He's you know he's banging on the doors, the gates of the city. He's, you know, he's clearly um, not all there. And so Abimelech came. He, he's, he's not going to kill David because there's no, there's no glory in killing a man who's obviously insane. And so David escapes. And David thanks God for protecting him, right? Because that could have easily gone the wrong way. Um, and he says he has this great line where he says. Um, uh, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones; not one of them will be broken. And that grabbed my attention because I thought to myself, what if David, that he has been pounding on the gates of the city like a madman, had broken a finger? Would God's uh, protection have been any less? Um, you know, if they had gotten in a shot and then he walked away with a broken leg, would that have been, would that have been enough to say, well, God didn't protect me? I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, any any Jew who would have read this psalm would have thought, oh, no broken bones, and immediately been transported back to the book of Exodus, mm-hmm. right, where we read about the Passover lamb, and God's instructions on that on the Passover lamb was you were supposed to have a, have a, a lamb without blemish and kill it and put the blood on the doorpost so that um, God would pass over the Israelite homes when um, when the plague of the death of the firstborn came through Egypt. Um, but then they were supposed to not break the bones of that lamb, and it's it's kind of an odd um, an odd command. But the idea was, well, you're going to be in a hurry. God's deliverance is going to come soon. I want you to I don't want you you know packing up leftovers. I don't want you you know no time for the the bread to leaven. No time to pack mm-hmm. up leftovers. Don't break the lamb up. Just go. Yeah. And so this idea of a lamb without blemish, a lamb without broken bones gets kind of cemented in Israel's history and in Israel's collective mind as as this righteous sacrifice that stood in their place, right? They were, they were full of blemishes, and this, this lamb was not. They were broken by sin. This lamb was not you know, physically broken. And so that's what David's saying, is God will protect, and he will keep us spotless. He will keep us perfect, just like that lamb. Um, and then obviously, you know, this goes, you flash forward to the future, and you've got Jesus on the cross, right? right. And what happens to Jesus? They're going around breaking everybody's bones so that they can call it a day. And they get to Jesus, and he's already dead, so they don't break his bones. Right. Again, another picture of this is, this is the righteous one who died in our place. And, and you know, so we all now, in, in light of Christ's sacrifice, live with Christ's righteousness. We are
0: the ones who don't have broken bones. That's so good. All right, John, it's been a delight meeting you, and your book is yeah. great. And uh, where can we find more information of, about you and, and uh, your other work? Yeah, um, so my website
3: is just pagesofjoy.com. I blog there, and I have information about articles and, and other books that are coming out and stuff, but yeah, pagesofjoy.com.
0: All right, let's do this again, and I want to talk about some of your other work as well. You're a delightful guest, and I appreciate meeting you, and I know my listeners have as well, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate you you having me on. I enjoy talking with you. Yeah, you bet. Have a great rest of the day. John Greco has been my guest, and the name of his book once again is The Ascent, A Devotional Adventure Through the Book of Psalms. And if you're like me, you love Psalms, and you love every book you can get your hands on that, that helps you study Psalms. And again, John's book is called The Ascent. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back with lots more.